take our Bibles then and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. And I want to read really some words that are quoted there. They're quoted from the 102nd Psalm, one of the major books in what we call the Old Testament. They're quoted here in Hebrews 1 in a particular way that I want to unpack for us this morning. And as I do that, I have several kinds of people in mind. I have all of us here this morning who are Christian people and who find ourselves at that stage in our lives, as we do in our time, where we're thinking about the future, we've reflected on the past, and we're thinking about the future, and we, we need something to build on. We need something as a kind of anchor, really, as we look into the future. Or, or maybe you're here this morning and somebody's brought you and you're not a Christian person at all and you wonder what it's all about. Well, I hope that this morning we'll be able to investigate that together. Well, in, in this first chapter, I want you to notice that what we're about to read in verse 10 is governed by the fact that this whole section really is about one who is Son, uh, the Son of God. And in verse 10, he quotes, the author quotes from Psalm 102, and he quotes something that addresses the Son in these terms. Listen to these words. You, Lord, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will have no end. Paul Tillich, the noted existentialist theologian, once traveled to Asia to hold conferences with various religious groups, and particularly with some Buddhist thinkers. He was studying the significance of religious leaders and the movements that they had given birth to. So, he asked the Buddhist scholars a simple question. What if by some fluke, he said, the Buddha had never lived, or he turned out to be some kind of fabrication? What would the implications be for Buddhism if that were true? The scholars did not hesitate to answer. If the Buddha was a myth, if he had never lived, it didn't really matter at all to Buddhism. Why? Well, because Buddhism would be judged as an abstract philosophy. It would be judged by the ethics, the system of living that were birthed and are known as Buddhism. Whether the ideas came from Buddha or someone else, or whether the product of a committee somewhere, is utterly irrelevant. Now, interestingly, I think that Buddha himself would probably have agreed with those Buddhist scholars because on his deathbed, he asked his followers not to focus on him, but rather to focus on his teaching. I don't know if Paul Tillich interviewed uh, an imam, but I imagine, for example, if he'd been able to interview Muhammad and suggested to Muhammad, how would Islam do without you? Muhammad would say it would do very well without me. 
He certainly, if you'd suggested worshiping him, probably have chopped your head off. Hinduism, for example, is a conglomeration of thinkers and philosophies and gods. They have multiple thousands of gods. If they were to lose a few this week, it would make no difference to Hinduism. Or think of the spirit gods of the, the, the various tribes in the Amazon region, for example. Uh, it, there, there's no link whatsoever to any individual that revealed those gods to them. Well, is Christianity the same as those other religions? Could we do Christianity without Jesus Christ? Would there be Christianity without Jesus Christ? And the answer of the Bible is a resounding no. That really, in many ways, is what this first chapter is saying. And what what I want to do is to come back to the chapter this morning, not so much to expound it as to apply it, uh, to apply it to people here this morning who are Christian people and to show them how it works in their life, but also to apply it to those of you who may not be Christians but are looking into Christianity and to see what it has to say to you and to your life. It, It tells us, for example, something about the story of humanity. It tells us that the story of humanity has been the story of God communicating with humanity. You can see that at the very, very beginning. If you cast your eye down to the page, you go back to the beginning of the chapter, and the writer is saying that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. He's writing as a Jewish person. He's referring back to the history of a particular people, a people known as Israel. He's referring back to their story. This people, of all the people in the world, had an experience of, an encounter with, a relationship with a divine being, and that divine being over a long period of time, a couple of thousand years, was communicating with them to their fathers through the prophets, figures who emerged, figures who were taken seriously because when they said something would happen, it happened. That was the basis for believing that a person was a prophet. They had to go through rigorous testing over a long period of time before they were accepted as prophets in Israel. These prophets demonstrated by their predictions and by their actions that they were qualified to speak on behalf of this deity. And over a long period of time, they revealed themselves, they revealed this God, or this God revealed Himself to them. Now, the interesting thing is, what do we learn during that period? That period of revelation we call now the Old Testament. It's not the best description, but it's the, we could call it the Hebrew Bible. It's part one of the Bible, basically. And in that period, what is happening is that God is making Himself known to humanity through this one people, group. He's interacting with them. He is working with them. He is doing things, miraculous things, amazing things with them. He is speaking through the prophets to them. And in their experience, their their history becomes part of the revelation of who God is. Whenever they turn aside to following other gods, whenever they, they think that they can marry their worship of the God of Israel with the other gods around, well, there, there are judgments. There, there are quite 
palpable judgments that fall upon them. In the end, because they play around with all these other gods of the nations round about who seem so attractive and seem to be doing such a good job for these other nations, when they play around with those things, in the end, after a long period of their history, they lose their property, they lose their place, they lose their city, and they lose their temple, and, and they're taken away, far away from where they were, they were operating. They lost their legacy. In, in other words, through their history, God is teaching them that there is only one God. Numerically, one God. One God who made everything. One God who keeps everything going. One God who governs history. One God who is immortal. That is, He always was and always will be. One God who is irresistible. That is, He is almighty, all-powerful. One God who is immense, who fills all things. The universe isn't part of God. The universe is just something God made, and God fills everything and everywhere with His presence. And He's incomprehensible to us. There is nothing that we know, nothing in our experience that we can compare, that we can look at and say, well, God is like this, or God is like this. No, He is incomprehensible to us humans unless He reveals Himself. And He is immutable, which means simply that He doesn't change. He is unchanged and unchanging. In other words, the whole of that first half of the Bible is telling us that there is only one God for all the world, for everybody in the world. One God. But then in part two, something happens. Something happens earth-shattering. You can see it again if you look at verse 1 and into verse 2. The God who spoke to our fathers by the prophets in these last days has spoken to us by one who is Son. And then it goes on to tell us that everything that God is, the Son is. Everything we can say about God, we can say about the Son except for this that He is the Son of God. Everything else that we can say about God, we can say about the Son. All the fullness of God and His nature and His works and His power and His eternity and His identity, the Son is part of all of that. There is only one God, and yet He is the Son. Now, that's really what this first chapter is telling us in a very, very clear way. And in, in, and in many ways, it's only saying what you find everywhere else in the Bible. If you select, for example, one book, I'll, I'm going to do it for you, the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew is a book about God. Of course it is. Well, that's what the Bible is about, God. And so, at the very beginning of Matthew, you have the report of a promise that was made to the people of Israel that somewhere in their future, a child would be born of a virgin, of a virgin. How likely is that? A child would be born of a virgin, and he would be regarded as, he would be described as, named as, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God, with everything we know about God, but uniquely God with us. 
That's a remarkable thing. No sooner do we hear about that promise than we we find another divine being coming onto the scene. This divine being is referred to right at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, near the beginning of that chapter, when we're talking about God making the universe. There He is. This Holy Spirit is there overshadowing the earth as it's beginning to take shape. He forms it and shapes it and brings life to it. And there in Matthew's gospel, the Holy Spirit makes a guest appearance. He overshadows the womb of the Virgin Mary. He creates a child in Mary's womb by a remarkable act of creation. And he does this all because it's the will of God, the Father. In other words, right at the very beginning of the New Testament story, you're introduced almost immediately to this Godhead that that you didn't recognize one God, but yet you can talk about God and you can talk about the Spirit. Or you can talk about God and, and this one who is becoming human, God with us. And you can talk about God as the Father of the Son. And no sooner does that happen, the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, than, well, actually, a little bit later, but 30 years later, in fact, 30 years later, the God with us character is now grown up and is beginning his public ministry. The name that he was given by his parents is Yeshua, which means God, Jehovah, is the Savior. God is the Savior. Jesus. He's going to be baptized because everybody in the Bung, the Jews, was being called to baptism. He does the same thing. He comes along with all the others. He comes to the be baptized by John, uh, who's a prophet, the last of the old prophets, the kind of transitional prophet. And as Jesus is baptized, God does a remarkable thing. The God who made the human flesh of Jesus in the womb of Mary creates a voice by which He speaks to the people who are gathered around as Jesus is being baptized. And this voice which the Father uses identifies Jesus. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And instantly, God creates a dove to fly down and descend upon Jesus as a signal that the Holy Spirit, because He is a Spirit and therefore you cannot see Him, is also in on the act of the baptism of Jesus. So there you have a Jesus baptism, a created flesh for Jesus, a created voice for the Father, a created dove to signal the presence of the Holy Spirit, all together, acting together, acting inseparably, as they had done when they created the world in the first place. And God spoke, and the Word made it happen, and the Spirit descended and made it all come to pass. That's the beginning of Matthew. And then if you didn't understand how it all adds up, how three go into one, right at the very end of the book, Jesus, risen from the dead, resurrected from the dead, breaking all the rules of nature in the process, Jesus alive from the dead, claiming authority in heaven and on earth, and in Matthew's gospel, 
Heaven always is a euphemism for God. The kingdom of God in the other Gospels is the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's Gospel. That heaven is where God is. Heaven is God's throne, and so on. All authority in heaven means all authority as God and all authority on earth in His human life and experience. All authority. He sends the church out to do what the church should do. Make disciples, baptizing people, teaching them, baptizing them in the name, singular, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we discover that early on in the New Testament, the divine name, the name that was named in the Old Testament, the name of God, the singular God, is singular. He is one God. And yet you can also describe three persons in one God. That's a mathematical conundrum that you're not going to solve in your lifetime and that we have to take by faith. Well, with that background, you see, you come to what we read in verse 10 of Hebrews 1. And there we see that the Son is involved in creation. You laid the foundation of the earth, Lord, in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He is calling Him Lord. He's calling Jesus Lord. It's the Son that, that if you look at the passage, you look at verse 8, you'll notice it's about the Son He's talking and he's calling him Lord. He's giving this Son, Jesus, a divine name, a divine title. This always happens in the Bible. Jesus is called Lord. Almost from the very beginning, he's described as Lord. When he was being introduced by the angels, they said to the shepherds, if you go to Bethlehem and you look for a a stable, and you find a manger, and in the manger you find a baby. That baby is the Messiah, the Lord. The word Lord is the God of Israel. He's the Lord. On one occasion, Jesus is arguing with some scholars. He's going to give them reason to have Him ultimately killed, because in that argument with them, He quotes from the Old Testament where King David, the great king of Israel, is referring to some person and He's just referring to his descendant, somebody who's going to come from his loins, who's going to be a descendant, direct descendant, and be the king of Israel. David talks about him and calls him my Lord. Jesus says to the crowds, how can he be David's Lord and David's son? How do you work that out? How can David call him my Lord? And after the resurrection, the resurrection absolutely transformed the disciples of Jesus. The resurrection was so stunning, there was nothing ordinary about the resurrection. It blew their minds. When they were reporting the resurrection to one another, they had to say, using the language of the God of Israel, we have seen the Lord. One of their number, Thomas, wasn't there. Thomas heard this. We have seen the Lord. What do you mean you've seen the Lord? Do you understand what you're saying? Do you understand that you're calling Jesus the Lord God of Israel? That's a monumental step to take. 
Thomas said, I can't believe that until I see him, until I see the wounds in his hands and in his feet and put my finger there to check out they're real and that, that it's him. And I will not believe unless I see that spear wound in his side and put my hand there in order to make sure that it is who he says he is. Until I see that, I will not believe. Because Thomas had worked out the math. He had figured out that if Jesus was alive from the dead, everything he had said that led to the charge of blasphemy was not blasphemy, but was true. And if it was true, the only response that human beings could give to this Lord Christ was worship, the worship that you would give to Almighty God. And when in the upper room Jesus appeared, first thing He said to Thomas was, Thomas, you were saying the penny dropped. How did He know I said that? Only God knows what people are saying when they're not there. And Jesus says to him, look here are the prints of the nails. Put your finger there. Give me your hand, Thomas. You want to take your hand and put it in my side? See where the flap is, where the, the spear went? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. You understand that from that point on, they could not read the Old Testament. Every time God is mentioned in the Old Testament, every time the Lord is doing anything in the Old Testament, they understood that that was the one Lord God of Israel, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting together inseparably as one. And that when they said, Jesus is Lord, they were saying, Jesus is God. Now, what is the benefit of that to us. Well, here's the benefit. Everything we can say about God, we can say about Jesus. And one of the things the Bible says about the Lord is that He is faithfully and unchangeably and always the same. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. You remain, you are the same. Your years have no end. You remain, you are the same. You are unchangeable. Now, listen. Here's here's how you work this out. How does this apply to me, my life, right now, this Sunday morning, tomorrow morning? How does that apply to me? Think about it for a minute. If God in Christ is unchangeable, everything we know about God is unchangeable. Everything we know about God is the same and therefore dependable. And if God's eternal, for example, you take God being eternal. He's always there, always there. He had no beginning, He has no ending. Think about that. What does that do for you today? Isaiah was writing at one point to a very disillusioned and disheartened people who were in exile from their own home, and he's he's writing to these people. He says to them, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Do you know what that means? That means He does not faint or grow weary. 
That means his understanding is unsearchable. That means that you'll never tire God out. You'll never tire Him out with your cries or your pleas or your prayers. And caring for the universe and caring for you, that never tires Him out. He is unchangeable in His strength and in His care. He does not grow faint and He does not grow weary. And His understanding is unsearchable. You do not have the weight of responsibility in your life for having to assess and find and search for an answer to all of the issues and problems that come your way in your life. So many of us tire ourselves out. We exhaust ourselves trying to find the answer. Why? 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 Why this? Why that? Why the other thing? We exhaust ourselves. We depress ourselves trying to find the answer. And we need to be reassured this morning. God's understanding of things is unsearchable. That this side of the sun, from our creaturely perspective, we cannot even begin to understand or take in, nor if we were told could we assimilate the knowledge. But one day, one day, one day when we see Him as He is, one day when we know as we are known, one day, that knowledge that is not understandable by us now, that is unknowable to us now, the reason why these things happen, the reason why 2016 was such a bad year in the lives of so many people in our congregation. We lost loved ones last year. We lost a child last year. We lost all kinds of friends last year. Some of you lost your job. Some of you lost a partner. Some of you lost your marriage. Some of you lost a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Some of you were disappointed in the life choices that you've made and how they've all flushed out. It was a disappointing year. What do we have to say about that? At this point, we don't have the answer to all of those questions. But God has the answer. And we can depend because He is unchanging in His knowledge, and He knows. He knows. He knows. And it means that Christ knows. The Lord knows. And we can trust Him that He that He never fails. That's why He gives power to the faint. That's why those who wait on the Lord renew their strength, because they find their strength from outside of themselves in Him, who never tires and never grows weary. Now, this is important, you see, because of the changing scenes of life. The Lord who is the same in creation, the Lord who is the same in sustaining a universe. The Lord who is the same is the same in the midst of all of the changes that are going on. Do you see the changes that are referred to here? The heavens are, and the earth will perish, verse 11. They will all wear out like a garment. The, the, the changes you see in yourself, every one of us is reminded, and perhaps more at the beginning of the year than any other time, reminded of the toll that time is taking of our bodies and of this universe. The toll that time is taking. 
That's why I find Christmas a great time. New Year's, I hate it. I hate it. Don't want to be there. Partly it's because I have a January birthday, and I, you know, January is not a good day, month to have children, by the way. Because uh, you're on the fallout from Christmas and everybody forgets your birthday. Everybody forgets your birthday. You want, you want the date so you can remember? Uh, everybody forgets your birthday. It's a depressing time. But the new year reminds us, doesn't it, of the toll that time takes on all of us. Fading. All this language that the Bible uses, it all fades. It perishes like a piece of cloth perishing. And that's the story of our lives. That's the story of our times. Everything is going to go in the end. But even this is in the hands of Christ. Do you see that? They will perish, you remain, they wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Kind of reminds me of the way our kids used to put away their clothes in the drawers. Instead of folding them, they rolled them up, shoved them in. Like a garment, they will be changed. The, the heavens, uh, the world, the universe that God has made is like a garment that shows off something of His glory. But it's going to be changed. It's going to be renewed. It's a transformation. It's going to be perfected so that Jesus' people in resurrection bodies will enjoy it forever. That's in His hands too. The perfection, the work of perfection is in His hands. And He remains the same. He's unchanging. He has entered into a covenant of grace to be to us what He is. Think of the attributes of God. He loves us. Will He ever change His love for us? When something goes wrong and there's a downturn, does that mean He doesn't love me anymore? Little girls used to play with daisies, pick the bits off the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Boys don't do that. But they think it. (laughs) Does she like me? Does she not? You know, you young guys, you just don't have a clue. Yeah, and you, you don't know. And there's so many issues like that in life, but not with God. He loves us with an everlasting love. He's unchanging in His love towards us. He's unchanging in His justice. Does He punish the wicked? Yes, He does. They don't get punished here. Often they don't. But they will in the end. He's unchanging in His promises. When Peter was talking about the things that pass away and so on, he referred back to Isaiah 40, all flesh is as grass and their beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Why? Because it's His Word. It's an unchanging Word. It will stand forever. Everything that we treasure and value in this life, and by the way, we should treasure them and value them, Everything good was given to us to enjoy. We're not on a guilt trip here saying you can't enjoy what you earn, and you can't enjoy your food, and you can't enjoy your recreation, and you can't enjoy entertainment, you can't enjoy television or movies or, or theater or, or concerts or whatever. That's, we're not into that stuff. Everything was given for us to enjoy. But 
If that is the horizon of your thought, if that is the beginning and the end of the way you see your life and the world, you are missing so much. This is the problem, isn't it, with the secular mind? The secular mind is confronted by the same realities we all are, by the frailty and fleetingness of life. They're dissatisfied. We are dissatisfied with it. But when we begin to reflect on what does frailty and fleetingness of life mean, and what is this dissatisfaction I have, if it's, if it's inevitable, then why am I dissatisfied with it? That very dissatisfaction is the fact that God has put eternity in our hearts, a yearning for eternity. I want to speak especially to those of you who don't know Christ and have no relationship or hope in Him. Any hopes you have are circumscribed by this life and the enjoyments of it. We want you to enjoy those things. But let me remind you, as I remind myself and all of us in this room, we spend our entire lives dying. And all of our days we spend changing for the worse. That's the reality. So I ask you, you don't believe in God, you don't believe in this hope we have, What do you then say to those people that you know who have come to the end of a hard, long, disappointing life? Those people that you know, everything's gone wrong for them. Their health has gone wrong, their relationships have gone wrong, their job has gone wrong. They lost their money, they lost their love, they lost their life, they lost everything. And you're talking to them at the end of that long life, and the end is near. What do you have to say to them? What consolation can you give to them? Well, you'll soon be out of existence altogether. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? But if, on your philosophy, that's the truth. In your philosophy... The entirety of life is simply putting off non-existence for as long as you possibly can. Medicating to put off non-existence as long as you can. Earning enough to pay for the medication to put off non-existence for as long as you can. Isn't that true? Think about it. Isn't that true? What about the person for whom life has gone so well? Everything seems to have fallen into place. Your wealth is increasing. Your health is good. Your influence is spreading. You're enjoying the good life. Well, I remind you that you too are just putting in the time to non-existence. And one day your kids will be fighting over your will. Because where there's a will, there's a relative. I mean, that's, that's the reality. Well, the best thing I can say to you this morning is that you should do what the poet once did. 
a poet that you'll find in the Old Testament, who went in, one day saw the prosperity of the wicked, he saw the inequality of life, his own faith was slipping away from him, and one day he went into church. And there in church, we're told, he considered their latter end. He considered the end of the matter. One hundred percent in every generation, one out of one people, dies. And as he considered that, he suddenly saw that the thing that was unchangeable was the unchangeable God of the Bible. One day when you die, speaking to those of you who aren't Christians, one day when you die, you will find that God is in Christ unchangeable in His justice. He will do things right. He will do things right. There you will be before Him, and here's what He'll say to you. I, I was perfectly kind to you. I gave you chances and opportunities. You, you were in church that Sunday in January, in the beginning of 2017. You were in the church that morning. You heard the truth that morning. You were invited to come to me that morning. You were told that there was no other hope, no other way. Yeah, what did you do? You walked away. You despised the good news. You turned back to your own hopes and your own illusions of what might be, and you forgot your latter end. And now you've died. Now you are here before me without my salvation. And now all the miseries you thought you'd avoided and all the miseries you experienced are nothing compared to what lies before you in eternity without me. That is the issue this New Year Sunday. When we speak of Jesus as the Son, we're speaking of the Son as God and of God unchangeable now and forever in all of the things that He has revealed. He's unchangeable in His love. And so today I can, with all His authority, say to you, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved here and now, this moment. But I have to also say to you that He is the same in His justice. And He will on the last day give you what you have chosen this morning and seal you up to your choice for all eternity. That's fair, isn't it? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done with Jesus and for Jesus will last. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this morning as we begin this new year facing the realities of the changing of time and of the toll that time takes with us, we pray that you would help us, everyone in this room, everyone watching by webcast, to come to that place where we know for certain, where we know for as sure as it's possible for us to be sure, 
that we are resting, trusting, leaning on your Son who came to reveal you to us, who broke the barrier of space and time in order that he might come into this world as one of us to communicate to us what you are like. We pray that we would find you by finding him this morning. In his strong name we pray. Amen.